Missing Persons. A missing person is a person who has disappeared and whose status as alive or dead cannot be confirmed as their location and fate are not known. A person may go missing through a voluntary disappearance or else due to an accident, crime, death in the location where they cannot be found, or many other reasons. A story I will share with you this Tuesday can make you think twice about who you really know in your life. Are they a friend or a foe? Do they root for your happiness or do they secretly want you dead? Business can be a tricky situation. People make financial mistakes. Mistakes that can make you think there is no other option than murder. This is the mysterious disappearance and murder of the McStay family. everybody. Welcome back to episode three. Thank you all for joining us. Today I will take you to the self-proclaimed avocado capital of the world, but also known as the Friendly Village, Fallbrook, California. Nestled into San Diego's North County and running along the 15 freeway with a population of 30,000 people is this quaint little town that I've come to love over the years. Fallbrook holds an annual avocado festival every year. They offer beautiful acre properties and have avocado groves everywhere. It also provides close access to Oceanside Beach or the stretch of casinos we have here, Paula, Harris, and Valley View. I personally have been to Fallbrook many times, mainly for work, and on a good day in traffic, I can get into Fallbrook in about 40 minutes where, from where I live today. So we have several different office locations within the company I work for, and sometimes we get a chance to go to other offices to cover shifts, and Fallbrook office happens to be one of my favorites. So if you guys tuned into episode one, you will be familiar with my guest today. It is Mike. Welcome back, honey. Hello. To the show. Happy to be recording today. Awesome. Happy to have you here. Um, So I know you've been into Fallbrook many times. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Like you said, they have like acre houses. It's a little bit more... Uh, I would say less developed than surrounding areas, so it's really nice. Yeah, it's got a quaint little um, feel to it. You can get in pretty much Fallbrook through like one main road, which is Mission Road. Yeah, so it's like a, I'd say it's a pretty close little community they have down there, or not? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to talk about the McStay family today. And at first, I want to just introduce the McStay family to you, Mike, and to the listeners. And then we will get into 
our story, of course, but our story first surrounds by this beautiful family called the McStays. I'm going to start with Joseph Joey McStay. He is the father and was born on November 20th, 1969. He was actually originally named Joseph Allen Ashley. Um, So his mother was Susan and his birth father was Robert Ashley. Susan and Robert's marriage didn't last that long and they soon divorced. And then on November 25th, 1971, she met a man by the name of Patrick McStay and they soon fell in love and got married. And since Joey's father wasn't around, Joey did take such a liking to Patrick. Patrick ultimately adopted Joey in 1973, officially making him Joseph Brian McStay. So the little family was thrilled. And later that year, the family welcomed Michael McStay, which ends up being Joey's brother to the family. And they actually all reside in Akron, Ohio at the time. So in 1975, Patrick and Susan actually decide to divorce, and a year later, Patrick is transferred um, to a job in Houston, Texas. And then several months later, Susan and the boys end up moving to Dallas, Texas. So I actually looked at that on the map, and Houston is like the lower southern region, and then Dallas is on the northern region, so definitely like a plane ride. Um, so the boys would actually take frequent flights to visit their father in Houston, but eventually in 1983, Susan and the boys moved to Sugarland, Texas, which was actually about six or seven miles away from where Patrick was staying. So that made it convenient. And in 1986, then, so they had a few years of that. And then in 1986, Patrick again was transferred, this time to San Antonio, Texas. And then Susan and the boys would eventually move back to Dallas. So he goes back south again and they go back up north to Dallas. A lot of moving around. Yes, a lot of moving around. Um, Joey, of course, having a bit of a hard time as a teenager and fighting a lot with his mom, one day up and decides to go and move with his father, Patrick. And so his um, mom, they were having a fight one day. And so Susan called Patrick and was like, Joey's on the way. Like he's going to, he left, he's going to be there in four hours. And, um, of course, Patrick was thrilled about this idea, um, and welcomed Joey with open arms. And then Susan eventually actually decided to move to California with a boyfriend and she took Michael with her. So Joey lived in Texas with Patrick and Susan lived in California with Michael. And then of course, like any teenager again, Joey has like spats with his father and he goes and lives in California sometime with his mom, um, which actually brings out the pretty driven individual side of Joey at this time. Um, 
For example, just a few things to kind of get into how Joey was like as a person. When he was 17, he actually would make bracelets for his friends out of like scrap wetsuit material. I found this like super interesting. The bands were actually a big hit and Joey and his friends knew that they had like made something cool here. Um, so they made these sturdy cords that they weave together and attached them to their surfboards, um, to their bodies while they surfed. They eventually dubbed this as dinky bands. The dinky wristbands were such a hit that eventually they were actually able to sell the company and he was he made a nice profit off of it. And that was 17 years old. So pretty cool, you know, even though that he did have that kind of dynamic with his parents, the split parent, um, you know, uh, he still thrived as a child, as I'm sure Michael did too. Um, so they eventually knew Dinky Bands kind of became bigger than they, I think, expected. Uh, so they sold, yeah. So they ended up selling it to the right distributor, right distributor, you know, and it was like, Joey was like this natural born entrepreneur. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Joey's just history on how he, you know, had his parents and stuff. Um, I'm referencing a lot of this from the book that Patrick McStay wrote. So I'm going to be talking about that book a lot. It was called The McStays Taken Too Soon, A True Story by Patrick McStay. And I have to just give him all the credit in the world for sharing this. And I'm not going to share everything in the book just because I would hope that if you guys enjoy this podcast, you will go out and buy his book. Um, cause we should be expecting also a second book from him in the future, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, so Joey ends up, um, graduating and he eventually meets his first wife, Heather, which that's funny. Your first wife was Heather. <laughs> so in 1990, they met and they married in 1992 and her father actually owned a huge jewelry trade store in Laguna Beach. And she worked there for him eventually. And then in 1996, they welcomed their only son together, Jonah. And that is Joey's actual firstborn son. So Joey, of course, was ecstatic to be a father. And he was deeply in love with his wife. Um, he was happy to be living in San Clemente, California. And while they lived in San Clemente, um, he was a bartender. And then he also decided to start up a company um, where he was designing like small water features. And he actually bought a shop called Naturally Dana Point. And by the end of 1996, he was selling up to $100,000 in water features. So this is kind of where he broke into the business. It became another huge success, which Joey wasn't unfamiliar with. Um, Joey actually recruited the help of his big brother, Michael, at the time, who was actually living in Hawaii and then decided to move um, back out and help his brother. So Joey's father talks about this time that they went to a trade show with this business 
with Naturally Dana Point. And they were doing actually really well at this trade show. They were, you know, meeting with other business partners or other people in the business. And this crazy woman, I guess, came out of nowhere and started accusing Joey of stealing her like Zen idea. So I guess, you know, I told you Joey has a creative side. So he started putting like little features on the water features. And I guess it was the same sort of like... Asian symbol as this other lady was trying to use. Um, so she ends up starting this huge legal battle with the company that Joey and his father actually helps him a lot financially through this whole, um, all throughout his, all his companies. But she starts draining him in this like huge legal battle and it starts to really take a toll on him, not only financially with the business, but mentally. So I'm sure home life was difficult. And just when you think things couldn't get worse for Joey, his wife tells him that she's pregnant again. So most people would probably be happy with news with this, right? Like even though you're going through a stressful time, like, yay, okay, at least we're having another baby. Yeah. Well, not if it isn't yours. Oh. Yeah. So she tells him that the baby's isn't his and that she'd been having an affair with a man who worked at the jewelry shop that her father owned. So Joey, being the good man that he is, fought for his first wife. Um, And she decided to go back with him for a little bit, but then eventually just decided that she wanted to be with the jewelry man and tore Joey's heart out. Um, And with the lawsuits and the money debt, no wife and now no son, Joey reluctantly moves in with his mom and bounces back and forth from different friends' couches for a while. So kind of goes into a depression. Uh, one friend in particular, though, MacGyver Jeffrey McCargar, interesting name there, was one of Joey's good friends and encouraged Joey to kind of get back out on the dating scene, you know? So Joey turned... So during this time, Joey began to pick up his career again, um, and he was introduced to a friend named Guy, and with his help and Michael's help, they opened up a business called Integrity Electronics, where they rented a warehouse to sell computer hard drives and to computer manufacturers. But... Joey, after a while, still longed for the creative Fountain Day business. Um, And Guy knew actually a lot about websites. So he helped Joey set up one of like a fountain website for him to kind of get back into it. And he actually introduced him to another guy named Dan Cavanaugh. And Dan was known as like Dan the Hacker. This is how Patrick knew him, which is Joey's father, and everybody kind of involved in Joey's inner 
intertwining circle. And he was just a good like computer whiz guy. He knew how to set up websites and stuff. So he was known as Dan the Hacker. And then Joey eventually set up his business called Earth Inspired Products. And that's IEP. And his father helped him again financially with that. And he became um, a reseller of fountains for like large manufacturers like Blue World of Water, Adiago, and Water Wonders. I don't know. Have you heard of those places? So I guess they're just big, large, you know, places that sell like fountains and stuff. And so he would buy them probably at like cost, you know, or whatever price he got them and then resell them to people. Maybe so modify them a little or yeah. And then he would thing on them. right. And then he would also custom build his own fountains, um, with people who bought them. So he would contract anyone he needed to pretty much get the job done. So I think he was the middleman of all these little entities that made this fountain business. Super smart idea. Yeah. Entrepreneur wise. Um, this became a huge successful business and um eventually they would have some time to kind of go out and start hanging out and MacGyver ends up introducing Joey to Summer her name is Summer Martelli and now we're going to talk about Summer Martelli mixed day she was born in 1966 to her mother Blanche originally named Virginia Lisa Aranda Aranda I want to make sure I say that right Uh, she had two siblings Tracy Ann and Kenneth it's I'm pointing out that Summer was originally named a different name same with Joey too kind of something they have in common um but we're gonna get up get into also why Summer has multiple names um her mother uh never was really with Summer's dad so they never really had a relationship growing up so Summer really didn't have a father they grew up in Chicago though Um, And then in the 70s, Summer's family decided to move to California. And even though Blanche, her mom, was a single mom and they made ends meet, uh, Summer actually had a very happy childhood, did very well in school. She played an instrument and ran track and cross, cross country. She was a great artist in her youth and grew up to be a pretty, like, amazing woman. She built her own business, which was a surfing school, and eventually became a realtor for like a little bit. Uh, Summer was described as honest and hardworking. She truly believed in the power of prayer. It's a, I thought that was a cool fact about her. Um, she was a good friend with sound advice and pretty much got along with everyone. So Summer grew up, and before she met Joey, she was actually living in Big Bear, California, working at Snow Summit Ski Resort, which, honey, I know you're familiar with Big Bear a lot. So My grandparents owned an arcade there, so I stayed a lot of summers up there and a lot of 
lot of holidays up there, so. Spent on the old, so you're familiar, obviously, with Snow Ski, or Snow Summit Ski Resort. Yes. Is that where we went, or where did we go no, and we just recently we went? went? Mountain High. Okay, oh, that's right. Different mountain. Oh, that's right. We didn't go to Big Bear. I don't know yeah. what I'm thinking. Anyways. Um, she was a good worker there and she actually worked in Little Bear, which is the infant toddler ski school. And that's where she eventually met her boyfriend, Vic, Victor, AKA Vic. She was actually supposed to come back next summer. So I didn't know this. When you work at a ski resort, you, um, you have to be asked back like as an instructor and stuff. So I don't think everybody makes the cut. Yeah. So she made the cut. Um, but according to like a friend, cryptically, I kind of gathered there was trouble in paradise with the boyfriend mm. that um, eventually prevented her from going back and working at the ski resort. Um, but they stayed together and eventually they even bought a house together in Big Bear. Uh, her friend Jeff eventually at some point, don't know how, um, Jeff was introduced, uh, Jeff, oh, her friend Jeff, duh, MacGyver. I don't even know my own script here. Um, Jeff MacGyver, them introduced them at some point. So I don't know how, like, it, they all got together but in the summer of 2004 is when she finally met Joey and she was in the midst of like this bad breakup with Vic. Um, Vic and her were together for a long time so I really didn't need to get into the nitty-gritty of their relationship and stuff but uh, during this time she was going through I think a dragged out breakup. Yeah. Um, so Eventually, Jeff um, knew that kind of like Joey and Summer would have common interests. Joey was a surfer that had lived in San Clemente with his first wife. Um, they, uh, she, Summer owned the surf in instructor business. And yeah, exactly. He described her as the cool hippie chick. So that was cool. So obviously Joey eventually became out of his depression. He was doing well with IEP. He had friends around. His father was around. And then he meets Summer and the two fall in love. So things move quickly for them. And by the November of 2004, so they met in the summer and then by November, Summer's actually pregnant with Joey's child. So, yes, um, Summer still has the ties to the Big Bear house during this time. And in the book of Joseph Mixday, he talks about how Joey had this, like, brilliant idea to kind of help Summer to sell the house. And I think... They, again, financially help that situation happen. And she sells the house, gets the money for it. And then Summer eventually moves in with Joey in his apartment in San Clemente. So now they're all living in San Clemente. And Summer takes on the stepmom role, which I am familiar with. And I have a really great stepmom. Um... So 
they, so they're doing the whole blended family thing. And I guess like they kind of have a little bit of a tit for tat here and there with, you know, Joey's ex, um, wife thinking that summer could just like watch Jonah at any time. Or I think there's a lot of miscommunication, a lot of frustration with summer on that end. I mean, she's pregnant. And it's very common. Yeah. Very common, trying to blend it all together, everybody, you know. Um, Summer, though, was not shy in her feelings on letting, I guess, certain people in the family know how she felt. I don't know why some of this was put on an emphasis. I think it's just to show the different dynamics um, because of what eventually ends up happening that we talk about, so... Um, But nonetheless, they had their frustrations and everybody was kind of adjusting. But then eventually on July 9th, uh, 2005, Summer gave birth in her home with a midwife to baby boy Gianni Giuseppe Martelli Mixtay. So, of course, the entire family was overjoyed. Summer's sister and brother came out to stay for a time. Um, making, They even made trips to go see Grandpa McStay in Houston. And by Thanksgiving of 2006, Summer was pregnant again. So they were enjoying themselves. And on January 31st, 2007, Joseph Matteo Martinelli Mix or Martelli Mixday, Joey Jr. was born. So the family was now complete. They had Jonah from the first one, and then now they had Gianni and Joey Jr. So Summer was excited to be a mom and probably the last thing on their mind was marriage but they decided to get married and on November 10th 2007 in Rancho Cordova they had their wedding unfortunately summer I guess had like a falling out with some of her family members um so none of her family attended the wedding but Joey's did So his father was there. His mom was there. So there's that. Um, After the wedding, family and friends, you know, like anybody getting married, and they have two young boys. They kind of get into their own life and do their own thing, you know. So I guess there's a lot of reports that they kind of became reluctant to hang out with friends and family, you know, after all of this she had a temper and it was said you know so everything wasn't rainbows and butterflies i have a temper (laughs) (laughs) yes so i understand these things you know it's just like any other life but a lot of emphasis was put on the way they were with each other the family and everything so You know, eventually, right now, this family is living in an apartment in San Clemente. So eventually, Summer and Joey are like, we need to to buy a house, right? Well, 
they were living in San Clemente, California. So we know Orange County and how expensive that is. And so, of course, they wanted to live their beach, you know, dream, but they knew that wouldn't be plausible on their budget. So Joey kind of had the brilliant idea of started to look more inland for housing which I know is brought, I know that brought my father inland, brought him to Lake Elsinore because he was living in um, Lake Forest for a while. And that's Orange County too, if you guys are not familiar with it. Uh, so uh, they helped, um, so they wanted to buy this whole housing and eventually they ended up talking they end up talking about you know going to more inland on the 15 freeway joey talked yeah joey talked about his dad dad about temecula and then eventually they found fallbrook and then sometime it looks like early august in september 2009 they found the house on avocado vista lane in fallbrook um so they packed their apartment And they said their goodbyes to Orange County and decided to drive inland. So I kind of skipped over the whole apartment thing. um, But I want to tell you what happened with the apartment. Because Patrick McStay talks about this in the book. Um, So I guess the landlord, for some reason, they had, you know like any new house escrow has a hard time going through and I guess the house got delayed about a month and they had already told the landlord they were going to move out and then so they asked the landlord if they could stay and the landlord kind of got pissed off about it and threw a fit so they decided to move on when they said that they were going to and the landlord ended up saying that they bounced out on their month's rent that they owed like a month's rent and so tried to sue them over that crap so they had to move their they so before they actually moved because they had put you know the escrow thing got pushed off they had to eventually put their stuff all in pods and they had to go move with joey's mom for a little bit because of the sticky landlord situation you know and so this adds to probably more tension going and living with the mother-in-law and summer being probably not quiet about her dislike or you know and then on top of it too summer wasn't happy to move away from the beach she really wanted to but both her and joey knew realistically on getting their dream of having the beach house that they were gonna have to move inland they were gonna have to get this house in fallbrook put some money into it live there for a while make some capital on it then sell that bitch and move back to the beach beach. Yeah. yeah so everybody's dream out here in california we all wish we can do it because yeah some of us want to go to the beach some of us want to go to the mountains some of us want to live in ohio we don't know why that happens either anyways i'm just kidding my ohio peeps just giving them a hard time just like washington anyways so um summer of course in her little orange county way you know like i said had her own thing don't don't oc people have a thing about the oc like they think it's the best place in the entire world well it is (laughs) see and he's from the oc okay so dm me my oc peeps (laughs) 
<laughs> yay or nay with the OC. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the OC is great. So anyways, Joey always had his good little head on his shoulders and tried to make his wife feel good as they drove from their beautiful beach apartment to the suburbs of the other side of the mountain, I guess we'll call it. Now, as we've talked about before, Fallbrook is beautiful. It has the plush green hillsides covered in intertwined streets that all have house acre properties ranging from the high 300s to even the million dollar homes. So it's very cool. Regardless, I think the McStays eventually were happy to leave mom's house and start their new adventure. So around late November of 2009, um, right around Thanksgiving time, so did their house and they moved in. So they jumped right into things, things it was not turnkey when they moved in and Joey still had, of course, IEP to run. So Summer kind of jumped into the whole full-blown renovation thing. I gotta stop you right here. Yeah. You keep saying IEP and it's EIP. Oh, that's so bad. Thank you. EIP, IEP. You know, that comes from, I am, that's my medical background, (laughs) but I'm also a mom of an autistic boy. So IEPs are individual evaluation plans that happen. So I apologize to that. That's a big, bad mess up. EIP. Oh my goodness. I almost did it again. Okay, so by the new year of 2010, they had had new kitchen and bathroom countertops at this point. The wood had been delivered and the flooring was going to be installed. Uh, Patrick McStay was making plans to come up and help build an outdoor playhouse with the boys. Summer had been emailing back and forth with the carpenter to come in and do baseboards. And MacGyver, their friend, had been helping them paint the house. So all was in order for the McStay family as they were kind of going in their new adventure of being in Fallbrook. Getting the house together. Yeah, so it could have, it was just the best it could have been. Or so everyone thought. So, On February 4th, 2010, the day started out like any other day for the mixed days. Summer had woke up early that morning and began working on little Joey Jr.'s third birthday. His birthday, as you may recall, was on January 31st, but Summer's emails that day show that she was planning like a small last minute birthday bash at Chuck E. Cheese. She was calculating the cost and she wanted to have it on Saturday, February 6th. At 9.41 a.m., Summer made a phone call to her sister Tracy and made a plan to make a trip to see her and her newborn baby sometime the following week. 
Joey had been up early that morning as well, and it shows that he was making work calls by 9 a.m. that morning. His father, Patrick, recalls that he was out of the house early because he was on the phone with Joey, who was in the car for about five minutes that morning, and that was at 10.39 a.m. They talked about the kitchen and bathroom installation and how Joey saved money on the new job that he just did. He got a new custom waterfall job that they were talking about, and that morning he was going to be heading to the bank to deposit a $14,000 check. He also had a prearranged meeting with his subcontractor, Chase Merritt, in Rancho Cucamonga. So Joey ends up actually stopping at the Union Bank um, before he meets Chase at the nearby Chick-fil-A in Rancho Cucamonga. Now, I have to say that this was actually never verified by police. Um, There's no video that ever surfaced of the two ever having lunch. And then by the time the police went and actually interviewed these employees, nobody had any real good recollection of seeing the two men that day. Okay, so then after that, they had a four-hour meeting, and then he supposedly heads back to Fallbrook, So that's a two-hour drive from Rancho Cucamonga back to Fallbrook with traffic. He was driving his white Zuzu Trooper, according to Chase. Now, Chase is the one that told law enforcement this when eventually, okay? Okay. At around 11.30 a.m., Summer got a text from Jeff MacGyver, um, but it went unanswered. And then around somewhere around 2.11 p.m., Summer got a call from a homeopathic medicine store. I guess she was trying to locate this medicine called Anger. And the person distinctly remembers making having this phone call with Summer because she was adamant that the medicine medication was called anger and he was like no ma'am we don't have any sort of medication like this um so then at 2 36 p.m summer's credit card was actually used at a ross in vista and this was something that didn't actually come to light till about like a year later um but The transaction occurred, couldn't be verified by video surveillance, um, and then when they got the receipt, no one in the family could actually verify that it was Summer's signature. But a side note on this, how many times have you been at a store, you have two kids with you, or even by yourself, and or maybe you're on the phone, or maybe you're doing something, and you sign that credit card super quick, it's not even your signature. You know, so it could have been something like that. Um, Then Summer heads home. She, it is assumed that it's a 20 minute drive from there. And because we know this, because at 3.52 PM, she actually sits down at her desktop computer at home and she searches for Craigslist toys. And then at 4.25 PM, there was an outgoing call from the home to Joey's cell phone, which pings Joey's phone off like a Fallbrook tower. And this is the last known outgoing call from the home that day. 
Summer does end up sending a text to Joey at 5.05 p.m., but according to cell phone, f- cell phone and actually the search of Patrick McStay, it shows that Joey didn't get the text on his phone until 5.47, which Patrick explains that the only thing I can think is Joey might have turned off his cell phone you know, to maybe save battery or something. And then he eventually turned it back on again. That's why it shows the record of Summer sending it at 5.05, but him not receiving it till 5.47. Um, then the they capture on a neighbor's surveillance at 7.47 p.m. someone pulling out of the mixed day driveway. Now it only shows partial of the vehicle. They can verify that the vehicle is white and large so they think it's consistent with Joey's Zuzu Trooper. So it's assumed that that's his car but again no real actual evidence that it was the car and that Joey actually arrived home anytime on February 4th. So the last known call from Joey's cell phone that day was 8.28 p.m. and that was to Chase Merritt, the one that he had the meeting with. Yes. And, um, but Chase says that he didn't answer the call because he was watching a movie with his girlfriend at the time. And it also verified that the ping of that call was somewhere near the mixed day residence. And then nothing. So nobody hears anything from the mixed days. Patrick mixed day that hit says that all his calls from February 4th to February 9th all went unanswered. At first, it didn't really strike Patrick, I think, as something to be too worried about. Joey was known for going on, like, cell phone vacations when, like, work got busy and stuff. So, you can get it, you know. Take a break. Yeah, you're, or, or you're just busy and you can't answer your dad that's calling you or whatever it may be. Um, so, he tries. And then on February 9th, Patrick McStay received an email from Dan Kavanaugh. Remember Dan? Dan the Hacker. Okay, so Dan's still working with them, and he's obviously in daily touch with Joey. Dan, the hacker, states that he was alarmed that he hadn't heard from Joey. It was very unlike him to not answer calls, check his emails, and especially ignore incoming orders. Dan was the webmaster for EIP and an independent contractor, so he was in constant contact with Joey. Um, Joey handled all the sales, customer service, and procurement of the fountains. And then Chase Merritt and Randy Miner were welders, and they were independent contractors with EIP on a small, on like the smaller custom features that they did. So. According to the San Diego Sheriff's Department, on February 10th, someone either suspected to be Chase or Dan made a phone call to the police for a welfare check on the family. Okay. Um, Then, so the report from that officer states that he went to the home, no one answered the door, and there was no sign of foul play. Okay. Now, at the same time, Patrick McStay is calling his son, his other son, Joey, and is like, hey, I haven't, I'm calling his other son, Michael. I'm sorry, apologize. Calling his other son, Michael, and 
he says, hey, I haven't heard from Joey, you know, and at first Michael's like, dad, you know, it's, it's okay. I'm sure there's something going, you know, sure. It's everything's okay. I'm not going to drive two hours down to go check on my grown ass brother. You know, um, so he expresses that to his dad and, but then, then Michael somehow talks to Dan and Dan expresses his concern to Michael, which eventually finally makes Michael drive down to his brother's house. Okay. So at first when Michael gets to the house, he reports that the house was fine. It was all in one piece. Um, Joey's pickup was in the driveway. The dogs were in the backyard and, um, for some reason, Chase Merritt actually tagged along with this trip with Michael. So he went to the house too. And he was the one that actually pointed out that the dogs were in the backyard and that they, I guess they had the shed that they kept the dog food in. And so that was a little bit open and the dog bag was like ripped open. And then the water bowl was actually moved underneath like the little water spigot. So he kind of pointed that out like, okay, maybe they just were going to leave for a little bit. Yeah, and they left food and water for the dogs. Right. But when Michael returned to the house on February 15th, now and still no family he finally decides to call 911 and this is honestly when i think the true nightmare really began for everyone when the deputy entered the mixed day home he first noticed that there was perish- perishable food left out on the counter so um egg uh, egg carton was left out. Bananas were left out. There were bowls of popcorn that were left full on the couch sitting there. Um, kind of like waiting to be eaten. The dogs apparently rose really big red flags, especially for the family members of Summer's family because Summer treated those dogs like babies like part of the family family. she would have never have left on top of it they had just gotten a puppy too so they were kind of like this is weird expensive shoes were at the doorstep i guess that summer would have never have kind of left without um upon verification of bank accounts everything had been untouched it literally seemed like the family just got up and walked away, but eerily walked away, or something interrupted them. So the next thing that actually came up, um, this was before the 15th. Um, On February 8th, the family's Zuzu Trooper was recovered from the San Ysidro border. Um, they weren't made aware of this for a while though. Um, and so when this was recovered and the family kind of found out, everybody kind of assumed that the family kind of like picked up and went to Mexico. So there is a couple of things that I want to talk about with this. This is, this is sounding weird, right? Yeah. Okay. So... 
when I watched the Disappeared episode of the Mixed Day family, this is when I was very first introduced to them. And one of the things that stood out that made people think that this family disappeared was a few things, okay? The law enforcement found a few things on the Mixed Day's computer that suggested that maybe they were thinking of taking a trip to Mexico or like somewhere outside of the country. There was a Google search of how to get passports for children in Mexico. And then Summer, I guess, had like this whole email transaction about buying Rosetta Stone in Spanish. Okay. And then, then when they recovered the Azuzu Trooper on February 8th, you know, law enforcement decided to check all the border cameras to see if they saw anybody and family crossing. Family crossing. Mm-hmm. And through that footage, through this like grainy footage, they were able to actually pick out a family of four, two boys, a mom and a dad. And you can see them walking in the video and it's grainy. You kind of, you know, and I guess family members, when they saw it, they were like, no, it's not them. Or I guess it was a split consensus. You know, some people probably thought for sure. It wasn't for sure. Exactly. So of course, everybody is like, why? Where did they go? Are they okay? You know, Summer's friends and family say she would have never have gone to Mexico. They they would have never have taken the kids and just picked up and have left. Yeah, I couldn't see moving from Fallbrook to Mexico. Right, but again, there was no signs of foul play. Yeah, why would they just get up and move to Mexico I mean, when they, they just bought the this house first and they I mean, there would Right, be you know, or there would be I mean, there's there's there was thousands of dollars left in their bank account too. It wasn't just, you know, small amount of money. So, of course, the hours turn into days, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and soon we're at years. This case goes cold, and the world considers, did the mixed days just up and disappear? Or were they victims of actual foul play? Foul play. So it's funny that you jump at that so quickly because Patrick talks about so much in this book of how law enforcement was so quick to label this as voluntary missing. Um, So let's talk a little bit about suspects here. Um, First and foremost, you got to look at mom and dad. Let's look at Patrick McStay. All right. (laughs) I'd say that he's cleared right away because he lives in Texas. So, you know, you live in Texas. I get Susan also had a solid alibi. You know, she lived out of town. Michael, the brother, ended up becoming like a huge suspect, I guess, during some. Again, it's persons of interest. They're not actual suspects. Uh, Again, I just think no. Um, If you read Patrick's book, he talks about just the love that Michael and Joey had for each other. I mean, I understand they have to investigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Dan too, Dan Cavanaugh, you know, he was close to Joey. He had a wild streak. He wasn't exactly financially stable. Joey actually helped him out a few times. 
Um, even Chase, uh, he was the last person to see Joey. So, you know, why not have that? Or, but again, Chase, I guess, was given a lie detector a few years into this. Um, the FBI came into this FBI, um, the San Diego Sheriff's Department, um, Detective Troy Duggle was the lead investigator on this case throughout the entire thing. They did bring the FBI in because when you're dealing with outside U.S. jurisdiction, uh, they will bring in the FBI for this. So they brought in the San Diego unit. So that was a small little unit that also worked with the family. Um, what about Vic, though, too? Summer's longtime ex, you know? Um, and I guess there's a couple of things that, like, Vic had sent her an email in, like, December 2009 professing his love for her. He always wanted to have a baby with her. Maybe the jealous ex came and reared his ugly head eventually. It's always a factor. Yes. Um, I also want to point out that the McStay family really during all this time, not only did their family get super destroyed, the McStays and the Arandas, um, but they also did, you know, band together in their own way. Patrick had his own skills of communicating with higher ups you know, which something I think I would have a hard time doing, contacting like senators, you know, reaching out to just different programs, missing persons. And then um, Michael and Susan actually um, really did well as far as like social media and the media. They really got a lot of stories out. Uh, they created the Facebook page for the mixed days on April 2011. Crime Stoppers was contacted. Uh, the senator of Texas was contacted by Patrick. They appeared on CNN, Good Morning America, which that episode actually never aired. The ID channeled the disappeared episode um, where I first learned and I think like a whole bunch more that they really did. Um, so I think they did like an excellent job of really keeping the story alive and in the press um, but the most shocking announcement came during this investigation when in April of 2013, the FBI decided to actually completely take over the entire case. They, the San Diego Sheriff's Department had decided to classify this under voluntary missing and with the children involved they had strong beliefs that this family upped and left the country so they in april of 2013 they turned this case over to the fbi and the fbi took over so i actually wanted to read the original press release um that was released by the San Diego Sheriff's Department. And it says, the case of the missing McStay family has been investigated by San Diego County Sheriff's Department since they were first reported missing in February, 2010. Over the last three years, the Sheriff's Department has conducted an exhausting missing persons investigations in an attempt to locate the family. Hundreds of tips have been investigated without success. 
Since the case was initiated, we have worked closely with the San Diego Division of the Federal and Bureau of Investigation, as well as other law enforcement agencies. The consensus is the family in all likelihood traveled into Mexico on their own free will. There has been no contact or communication from them since February of 2010. Due to the fact that the family is believed to be out of the country and because minor children are involved, the primary investigative responsibility for the case is being transferred to the FBI. The FBI is the most appropriate law enforcement agency to continue the investigation since they have significant experience and investigate assets in foreign countries. The Sheriff Department will continue participating in the investigation in a supporting role. Anyone with information about this incident is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 888-580-8477. You can remain anonymous and be eligible for up to $1,000 reward for information leading to the resolution of this case. Signed, San Diego Sheriff's Homicide Detail. So there you have it. It was probably a big blow for the family who still really thought that something bad had happened to them. But as the truth will always have it, it will set itself free. Because on November 11, 2013, news broke that a motorcyclist in the Mojave Desert found human remains near Victorville, California. After the police had a chance to investigate, they found four bodies in two shallow graves. They had been bludgeoned to death and a sledgehammer had been buried by the bodies. And on November 15th, 2013, it was confirmed that the bodies found in the desert were that of the McStay family. 40-year-old Joseph, 43-year-old Summer, 4-year-old Gianni, and 3-year-old Joseph Jr. The homicide investigation starts at this time, and it is announced that the San Diego Sheriff's Department would not be leading this case this time. But this time, it is San Bernardino's Sheriff's Department who would be leading the case. And almost a year to the date when they found the bodies, on November 5th, 2014, the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department arrested Charles Chase Merritt on the suspicion of murder. So, um, it is now 2020, and I can't even describe to you the amount of hoopla that went on with this case. He was arrested in 2014, and we are actually about a month and a half shy of his actual conviction. 
So why this took so long? Well, you can say that Charles Chase Merritt was somewhat of a showman. He not only decided to hire and fire his lawyers that he had, but he also did pull the Ted Bundy and decided to try and represent himself before the trial. And then I guess the last minute before the trial is supposed to start, he backs out and says, I can't do this. Then ends up hiring and firing a whole bunch of lawyers till he comes to the lawyer that he has now. Dragging it out, dragging it out. Yes. Dragging and dragging and dragging. And, and then even like the DA side had like public official scandals going on that were like taking precedent over this case. I mean, what a fucking circus for everybody. And not only like these people involved, but the families just couldn't imagine So finally, on January 7th, 2019, opening statements begin for the Mixed Day case, which are available for any of you to listen online. Um, The trial did just end, so I don't have a lot of information gathered. And to tell you the truth, Patrick McStay is probably going to be doing a second book that he's going to dive into with all these nitty gritty details of what exactly happened. So I'm going to give you guys a brief overview of the evidence that I seem to gather off of Chase Merritt. Okay, so it looks like according to stuff that I found, cell phone records from Chase show that he was actually in the area, so Victorville, California, at the time the mixed days went missing. So there were cell phones, I guess pings, that determined he was in the area. Placed in there. Yes, reading a little bit about Merritt's background too, he did live in Victorville for some time. So he's so familiar, he's with, familiar the with the area. Um, financial records also show that Chase was siphoning money from Joey's account of EIP and he was making checks from a program called QuickBooks. So he was, and apparently he's not the only one that had access to EIP after the mixed days went missing. Um, Susan and Michael were heavily involved in making sure that they really didn't want the business to belly up for, you know, their family. So they really did try and keep it alive. But I think it really tainted a lot of things as far as like hands in the cookie jar with the business. So Joey wasn't there running it. So right. And he should have him or his father, somebody that would like actually had signatures on the bank account should have been the one managing it. But again, that's something that Patrick McStay talks about as well. Um, audio from interviews with law enforcement, um, have chase using past tense phrases when talking about the McStay's. So, like, was my best friend. Um, And this is back when he was originally interviewed. And supposedly missing. Yes. family was supposedly missing. He apparently owed uh, Joey for up to anywhere, I think, thirty to $40,000. He was already in debt. 
with the McStays. He had a criminal record um, from burglary, grand theft, gambling debts, and he had $20,000 in unpaid taxes. And I did also read that one of those burglaries was from a former employee where he stole like $21,000 in like materials. So this guy was no joke. Um, he did take a lie detector, which I didn't get an actual, like he passed, um, but there, the detective at the time just said that there were some inconsistencies, but obviously enough to let him go. So for me, that's a passed lie detector test. Um, some, he was also the one to be the one to suggest, oh, hey, look at the dogs are out in the backyard. He was the one that pointed stuff out. So he kind of like had a hand in turning the investigation, maybe the direction that it went. That's what I gathered. Um, and I think sometimes law enforcement, unfortunately, does have a tunnel vision sometimes when it comes to certain cases. And I'm not saying that every department does this, but I do see quite a few times detectives kind of going one way because they just are certain that a case is this way when they were dead ass wrong this time they were way wrong um i think one of the most damning evidence that was found which happens to be in a lot of the news articles was that dna was actually discovered of chase in the Azuzu trooper that was recovered from the San Ysidro border. And it is said that Chase said that he never had been in the car himself. So if that was the case, then why was his DNA's, DNA found on the steering wheel and also the gear shift? Okay, but his defense attorney also says that, um, you know, the that the DNA evidence was actually trace DNA, which I've talked to you about before, which, cause you remember we joke around of how if we shake hands or touch each other, the trace DNA. And that's trace DNA for anybody that doesn't know. Um, you have trace DNA with your employees, uh, with people that you come in contact every day, whether it be a handshake, a brush, on the shoulder, a hug, whatever it may be that would be considered um, trace or contact DNA. Um, So that's what defense was saying in defense of that. Defense also said that the cell phone pings were BS, that cell phones really can't ping the area of what it said. And then they actually also um, blame Dan Kavanaugh. That is the defense's suspect in this. They say that Kavanaugh was angry from being left out because Joey decided to partner up with Chase more on things and leaving him out. So he was jealous. So basically prosecution is saying this was greed that Chase basically took the family out somehow. And they say that 
that Chase killed him in the home, but I don't find anywhere where they found actual DNA blood trace. Yeah, if they were bludgeoned, then there's got to be something somewhere. Right, exactly. And nothing was found in the house. And then Patrick McStay also talks about that the detective did have a cadaver dog, but the cadaver dogs only went to the outside of the house. They never actually went inside the house, which... (laughs) make zero sense to me is why law enforcement would make that choice. Um, I think there was a lot of inconsistencies with the investigation that was initially done by the San Diego Sheriff's Department, unfortunately. And I think they were convinced from the beginning that the mixed days had up and left. So the trial actually lasted a total of 50 days and then jurors came back with a guilty verdict for Chase Merritt and they found him guilty of capital murder on all four family members. And on January 21st, 2020, Charles Chase Merritt was sentenced to death. So that is the story of the McStay family. I have to just first and foremost say that this story has stuck with me for so long. I am so blessed to be able to talk about this family. There were times back in 2012 that I literally remember going, where the fuck did the McStays go? No joke. So... I am just so thankful that their family finally has them and are able to put them to rest. You know, I am looking forward to Patrick McStay's, you know, second book coming out to read the details on what exactly they had from Chase Merritt. Um, But he is, I believe, will be fighting his conviction. Um, There are victim impact statements that you can also go and watch. And I hope everybody enjoyed this episode today. I want to thank you, Mike, for being here. And everybody, don't forget to give me a chance to follow me on Instagram at Tuesdays with Trisha. You can listen to me on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, CastBox. And if you happen to listen to me on Apple and have a chance to give me a five-star review, that would be amazing. I would love to be able to keep continuing to do this for you all and be your basic murderous SoCal bitch. So until next time and until next Tuesday... See you next Tuesday on Tuesdays with Trisha. Hey guys, thanks for listening to episode three. I wanted to throw in a little true crime trivia that I did with my friend Alicia a few weeks back. You'll be hearing it throughout these episodes as I release them. Just some fun that we had. Two girls with murder trivia and some tequila. Hope you enjoy. A question. 
that never run your we don't know the answer to. Oh, hell. Or maybe you you know the answer okay. to, so you might have one up on me, okay? St. Valentine's Day Massacre is associated with which famous criminal? A, Al Capone. B, John Dillinger Jr. Or C, George Moran. Um, Don Dillinger? You're going to go with B? John Dillinger. John Dillinger. Dillinger. (laughs) I'm going to go with A, Al Capone. Valentine's Day Massacre. I don't know. I just feel like that's around his time. Yeah. If I'm thinking. That was honestly. Around what time? Just put Valentine's Day Massacre. I don't know. Just put St. Valentine's Day Massacre is associated with which famous criminal. So I picked A and Alicia picked B. Which was Don J- John Dillinger. John Dillinger. We apparently can't speak. That tequila, man. Tequila. It is Al Capone. Oh! Ding, ding, ding. Win, win, win for the Tuesdays wow. with Trisha. Yeah, she goes by bugs. <laughs> now oh, bugs. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I actually was going to choose B, but you chose it first. So, sex for you, I suckers. Know. <laughs> Okay.